Our scripture reading for today is Ephesians 1, 7 through 10. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. It's good to be with you. Uh, once again, I'm Sid Druin, and uh, I'm thankful to, to be with this community and also to open up the scriptures and to study them together. Uh, I think God has something really nice for us this morning. And so if you're in person, thanks for coming. If you're new to North Cross, we'd like to welcome you. If you're new to North Cross um, online or you're with us again online, thanks for being with us. Um, whether you're physical or virtual, welcome. And for those of you who are here physically, we'd love for you to, to hang out with us afterwards. Um, and if you're new, I, don't, I think Matt might have mentioned this, but you can shoot us an email um, with, with your contact info. We'd love to reach out. We won't bother you, but we just would love to reach out. So um, you can email info at northcrosschurch.com or sid at northcrosschurch.com. Um, and if you're here physically, we'd love to hang out outside afterwards. So we are in week three of a relatively new sermon series on the letter to the Ephesians called Jesus and his church belonging to an ordinary looking miracle. Remember the letter to the Ephesians is God's I have a dream speech. It's a God's vision for the church and for community, the community it is and it's going to one day become. And as our sermon title suggests, despite our best and worst efforts and opinions, the church is meant to look and to sound and even to smell like Jesus. Jesus whose birth and life and death and resurrection are in the words of Eugene Peterson, a miracle that didn't look like a miracle, a miracle in the form of the powerless, the vulnerable, the unimportant, an ordinary looking miracle. Along these lines last week, this week and next week, we're camped out in Paul's opening prayer in this letter to the Ephesians. It's what Scotty Smith calls one magnificent run-on sentence of wonder. I like that. It spans 202 Greek words in the original Greek. Um, there's no period in the original language and 12 verses in our English translation of Ephesians. But before we kind of hunker down in the middle of Paul's opening prayer in verses seven through 10, I would like you uh, to pray with me and for our time together. So let's do that together. Father, thank you for these words to us today. Um, would you meet us where we are with them uh, by your spirit? We need to see you, Jesus. Would you help me to get out of the way? Would you help what we've brought into this room to get out of the way, not to go away forever, um, perhaps even to, to, to bring, to bear your light upon those dark corners, um, those difficult edges of our lives. But Lord, we pray that you would be present with us. Would you come alongside us? Would you change us by fellowship with you? And we pray for your words. 
Would you, Jesus, be more believable and beautiful to the eyes of our hearts? Our rock and our redeemer, would you change the very meditations of our hearts? We ask this in your name and for your sake. Amen. In one of the writer Walker Percy's last public speeches, Walker Percy compared the modern American condition to living in a California house straddling the San Andreas Fault. This is the fault line that is the source of all the big earthquakes in California and beyond. Percy asks us to imagine what it, what it w- would it be like to live on this fault line, um, this very, very narrow but deep crack that has become as familiar as an old shoe because he says, after all, you can get used to anything. And we feed ourselves and our dog on the one side of the fault line and then we live our lives, we go to work and we go to our leisure on the other side never giving it a second thought. Although every once in a while, we might look down into the chasm and become alarmed. But this image isn't criticizing California city planning, right? That's not the intention of it per se. It's meant to sort of help us to think about the broader modern American condition. We can live normal, pleasant, mostly sunny lives, but underneath our suburban feet, Massive tectonic plates are daily slipping into a collision, metaphorically. If you go to the areas surrounding the fault line uh, physically, it's a, it's a bright blue sky with a slight breeze. It's green with growth. It's lovely to the eyes. And that's why so many people actually live there near the fault line. But it's millimeters, one plate slip away from buildings collapsing and lives being lost. I first contemplated using this illustration two years ago. Believe it or not, I looked at my notes. Um, I thought about, well, it would be great to talk about slight denial and the incredible normalcy of living on the San Andreas fault line for us over two years ago, uh, September 2019. According to my notes, two years ago, I would have felt like I had to really convince you that this was the reality that we lived in, right? I would have had to have been really saying, look, mostly the mostly sunny Lake Normans, subdivisions and office parks and Charlotte expansion restaurants hid subterranean divisions. You would have said, no. <laughs> and I would have said, yes. But for the better part of the last year and a half, the tectonic plates of science, race, politics, jobs, supply chains, freedom, equality, all of it has collided And over and over again, our deeply held but very human divisions have butted heads. And they poured outwards into tremors of stress and anger, shame and blame, silencing and shouting. But Walker Percy's San Andreas fault line does not just run through social and political bodies or tribes. It also runs through each of our hearts. All of us, white, African-American, and Asian-American, Republic, Republican or Democrat, vaxxer or anti-vaxxer, Christian or not so much, thank you very much, we are internally divided. We are at odds about who we are. We're at odds about where we come from. We're at odds about where we're going. And Walker Percy calls this divisiveness on the inside being lost or lostness. 
And here's how Percy puts it in his book, Lost in the Cosmos. This is a paraphrase of what he says. He says, deep down, we all feel spiritually dislocated in the modern age, and we're pursuing fixes like more freedom and better technology only to make, and that pursuit only makes us feel all the more lost. And really, Percy's Lost in the Cosmos is, a, is this sort of filled with humorous ways that prove we all actually deep down feel this way. For instance, he says how the 12 different horoscopes, you can sub in Enneagram types if you'd like to, less than 12, but nine, all of these somehow seem to fit us no matter which way we look at them. Or like how a complete stranger can in a second's glance see you whole, size you up, and place you in a way that you cannot and never will. Even though you've spent a lifetime with yourself in the century of self, and therefore, you and I ought to know your, ourselves best of all. The point that Walker Percy is driving at is this. We all need a better story to live into. We all need a bigger and better story to live into. Whether you're just sort of exploring Christianity this morning, or you've been a Christian for as long as you can remember, most of us live much of our lives without a greater context. We live with this narrow, self-focused sight lines. And we so quickly turn work or school or parenting into how am I performing? Or we turn our social situations that we enter into, how are people treating me? Or we turn our spiritual lives into the question, what have you done for me lately, God? And these can be really important questions, especially when we're under some stress and threat. The questions, who am I, how am I, and where am I, are not ultimate, however. They're penultimate. That's just saying they're not primary, they're secondary. And answering this question about God, the ultimate question, who is God and what is he up to, that helps answer those other questions about ourselves. Or, to quote Jesus, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. But how? For that matter, why? This is where our passage comes in. Ephesians 1, verses 7 through 10. God has planned and is accomplishing a cosmic-sized, soul-satisfying mystery among us. And that mystery is this, the uniting of all things in Jesus. God has planned and is accomplishing a cosmos-sized, soul-satisfying mystery. And that mystery is this, uniting all things on heaven and on earth in Jesus. Paul unwraps this mystery in three progressively larger swipes of his pen. First, verses seven and eight, Paul starts personal how God purchases and forgives us, God's redemption. And then second, in verses eight and nine, Paul gets a bit bigger, how God makes known his will, God's revelation. And then third and finally, in verse 10, Paul just really lets it fly. How God unites all things under Jesus, God's reconciliation. This sermon outline, its points and its verses should be projected behind me or also in your e-bulletin if you want to track along. And we're going to begin with the beginning in verse 7 and God's oh-so-personal purchase of us. 
In our passage, Paul describes God's purchase and forgiveness of us this way. In him, the beloved, Jesus Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. So what exactly did God do in his beloved son, Jesus? Well, three things. First, he redeemed us. This is a Greek term that's used all over the Greco-Roman world for paying the ransom price. You would pay a ransom price for someone who kidnapped a family member, a child, say. You would pay them back. Same word. Or you'd buy a slave's freedom. Redeemed. And it's just like what God did, same word in the Greek version of the Old Testament, for what God did at the Passover when he redeemed or bought his people Israel out of slavery in Egypt. God purchases his new community now, the church, from all nations, not just Israel, through Jesus' blood or his life given for us, he being the Lamb of God. But the second thing God did tells us even more about what we're delivered from. What are we delivered from? God's forgiveness rescues us from the penalty of our trespasses. And trespasses are just a way of saying the many and personal ways each of us wander daily away from living for the truth and from righteousness. The penalty, though, is the curse of sin, death and all of its attendant fears, guilt and all of its addictive cycle that it draws us into. Fear and guilt drive us into all sorts of spiritual and emotional and relational kinds of slavery. And where we look to someone or something, big or small, to save us, to deliver us or relieve us from life's pains. But verse seven is telling us once and for all, for all time, Jesus died to free our conscience from all and free our souls from all our secret guilts and fears. That's wildly good news. Jesus' salvation is that personal, right? He takes your suffering, my internal angst, that seriously. So seriously that the eternally satisfied God became a suffering man to see our problems through our eyes, to find us lost, homeless inside of ourselves, and soothe our sores and heal our homelessness of our souls. Third and finally, God and Jesus is lavishing his riches of his grace on us. Even now, God has made to abound. He has caused to overflow his storehouse full of undeserved favors. Right? I love the way that New Testament scholar William Hendrickson unpacks this for us. If if Paul had said just this, if he had just said God gave of the riches of his grace, we would expect some small percentage of God's gifts, right? Like a tip. 10%'s yours, Sid. Oh, no, no, 20%. There you go, bud. Right? That's what we think. But reality is Paul is saying God gives us according to the riches of his grace. Right? That is, God is giving us according to the amount that he owns. And he owns every single thing. God's generosity is infinite. That's hard to take in. So we don't just get a gratuity, right? We get a heavenly checking account. 
where we can draw down on every good and perfect gift that comes from the Father of lights. Or in the words of Annie Johnson Flint, his love has no limit, his grace has no measure, his power no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. I love that. So clearly God's lavish generosity is this incredible encouragement for us to pray, right? We get to draw down. We get to use the co-signer's access to those infinite unearned riches of God. But I actually think sometimes that first truth is harder to live out of. It's hard to live out of Jesus' accomplished redemption and forgiveness. It's hard to apply that. So I'm going to tell a story. It's a true story that I heard recently in a podcast. I've been listening to the rise and fall of Mars Hill. I don't know if anyone else has been listening to that. Um, it's about a pastor's climb to megachurch stardom and his equally spectacular fall. Um, and everyone brings their own church experience to this podcast when you listen to something like that. But for me, it's been this real mix of despair and hope. It's been confusing, uh, to say the least. Anyway, I listened to a recent episode where uh, a, there's a leadership conflict that's described within Mars Hill between the senior pastor and two of his site pastors or fellow, and, and fellow elders. And without going into too many details, it's about bylaws. After all, I don't know if we could make it through. Um, the two elders oppose the head pastor, Mark, and attempt to restruct, in his attempt to restructure the church. And at least according to the podcast, after an evening service, they're called into his office and on the spot, they're fired as site pastors. Um, and they, they're given the option. They can leave quietly or they can be pressed, uh, they can, he'll press charges for misconduct. And these two elders, Paul and Bent, choose to undergo the trial for misconduct. And so there's this lengthy, rather secretive process that includes subcommittees and long legal documents. And they review the details of Mark's charges against these two elders and pastors, Paul and Bent. And the process found that Paul and Bent are unanimously and without a doubt not guilty. But the problem is that Paul and Bent never had access to that document. They never heard the not guilty verdict. And so they go into this room full of all of these elders thinking they're, they're assuming they're guilty. And they come out swinging. And the things that they say and they do gets them separated from the church, terminated from relationship with the church, or, and in one case, suspended. And look, I'm not telling this, I don't have a stake in that game. We're not, we're talk, I'm not talking about, a, this is a now defunct church. Uh, we're not related to this church. I don't have much to say about what the church politics are there. But what I took away from that story was how I feel like I enter rooms like Paul and Bent did in that moment, right? On the defensive sometimes, feeling condemned, thinking everyone thinks I'm already in the wrong. And Ephesians 1 verse 7 tells me and it tells you publicly we are not guilty in Christ before the God of the universe. Yet how many times do you and I act like we're actually still guilty when we enter into a social space? with our spouses or our roommates we're acting this way, with our children or our colleagues. We often are hiding and blaming and bowing up and getting defensive. And sometimes we're just bowing out because we can't handle it, aren't we? And what does it look like to catch yourself in the act? When you feel the anger and the fear and the guilt spiking, 
What does it look like to take yourself aside and tell yourself the truth? Again, I'm forgiven. It's done. God made me and he bought me back. I'm twice his forever. How do I celebrate that win in this space? It's when I do that, that I take the rise and fall of my reputation, the rise and fall of my stock, much less seriously when I do that. Because I think God's got my back. And I own my mistakes more often and more quickly. Because I think if they only knew the half of my problems, this would be a totally different situation. (laughs) Right? What does it look like to live into that forgiveness? And look, as difficult as it can to feel that information that we, most of us know, the information matters. There's a power to knowing the truth. And according to verses eight and nine, God's revelation of his will is actually a blessing. It's a good gift in and of itself. And that's the heart of our second point this morning. You see, verses eight and nine describe it this way. Listen to the Sid Druin authorized version translation. <laughs> okay, this is my version, okay? In all wisdom and insight, God the Father made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good and pleasing purpose, which he set forth in Christ. Notice the incredible intimacy first of God letting us in on the mystery of his will. It's an intimate moment. John chapter 15, Jesus sort of hints at what sharing this kind of insider knowledge means. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. We all know this difference in our human relationships, right? Don't we? Can't we feel that difference between being a servant and a friend? Like typically your boss at work isn't sharing deep desires for her life, right? Or really kind of letting you in on the emotional investment that she has in the company's future. At least not intentionally, maybe that happens. Uh, But then also, but good friends are sharing these kind of mysteries all the time with us. And we're doing the same for them, right? And God is sharing his mystery with us according to his purpose, right? And, or in a fuller sense, he's saying, according to God's good pleasure, he's sharing something with us that is cherished and eternal. And this gets to the sticking point of verses eight and nine, right? What is the mystery of God's will? Well, what's the mystery? It's a story. It's really the story. And it's the story of how God from before the foundation of the world until the fullness of time, And even right now, how this God who created time itself is moving all things, things in heaven and things on earth, from dislocation and division, from discord and violence, from sin and death, to a grandly cosmic and ultimate goal, a new heavens and a new earth filled with meaning and harmony, peace and righteousness and eternal life. How? in Christ. (laughs) But before we get more into the how in Christ, verse 10, let me give a quick nod to those who've heard this before. (laughs) And you're thinking, so what? Who cares? Where do I fit in this story? The reason 
the knowledge of the mystery of God's will is so very important is that buying into this mystery changes the very way you and I see everything. Everything. It's not unlike how Nicholas Copernicus, right, challenged and changed the way that we view our solar system from an earth-centered solar system to a sun-centered solar system, right? And like believing in that sort of sun-centered solar system, understanding and buying into God's plan for the entire cosmos requires daily reminding, often against the evidence of our senses, right? It's not actually a sunrise. It's not actually a sunset. And same thing spiritually. And we're changed by how we view absolutely everything, including ourselves. And here's how in two sentences. God no longer orbits around me and my desires, but I orbit around God and his desires. God doesn't exist primarily to serve me. I exist primarily to serve God. To paraphrase C.S. Lewis, there are only two kinds of people in, this, in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those who say to God, my will be done. And this knowledge of God's sovereignty controls the way we plan and we pray and we work in his service. In the words of J.I. Packer, then all of a sudden happiness we now strive for is to forget oneself and the daily preoccupations of seeking God's glory, doing his will, and proving his power through the ups and downs, stresses and strains of everyday life. Self-forgetfulness is not another technique. It's just not another technique that promises a freer, fuller life with an easier calendar that you're better able to manage. It's actually a posture that we have in our busiest seasons. Self-forgetfulness remembers what those responsibilities that we're weighed down by, what are they for? What's their end goal? Self-forgetfulness tells us we and everything else in this universe is to be with and in Christ Jesus. That is the only way to blessed self-forgetfulness, remembering someone more important than us, Jesus. Is this the story that we tell each other? Is this the story that we are living out of daily? Look, personally, this has been a season where I am learning that the story I live out of and the story I say over and over again is far too small. <laughs> it is too suburban. It is too much like making my life easy versus good. It's too much about hype and entertainment and impact and too little about Jesus. And that's the truth. And really verse 10 is God's attempt to find and relocate us again or for the first time in a much, much bigger story, the story about God reconciling all opposing factions inside us and outside of us, about God uniting all things in and under his son, Jesus Christ. That's our third and final point this morning. God is gathering up every single thing that ever was and is and is to come under his authority. Like a body with many diverse parts, to its head, like a, rush, a running river rushing backwards 
to its headwaters. That is, Jesus Christ is the organizing principle, the central person at the heart of all history, natural history and human history, nation states and the church. So verse 10 at the very least means this. The reason that North Cross Church exists, the reason that you and I wake up to gather on a Sunday morning or we go on a Sunday night to a life group or we meet during a weekday, the reason that we do and are the church is because of Christ. I know that sounds so obvious, right? Doesn't it? it? Sounds so obvious. But we are singing and we are praying and we are reading and listening to the Bible because we belong to Christ. We need his encouragement. We need his challenge. We need him. That's why we're here. We gather for Jesus and for him alone. God is uniting us in Christ. But in the words of a pastor friend of mine, too often we come to Christian community demanding a certain kind of community, demanding a rather than the fellowship, right? Look, there is so much good happening in North Cross Church. So many people are changing for the better. I can scarcely take it in and I can scarcely keep up. And, and, right, I know we wish North Cross was different. If you've been around, we wish we had a better building. Yeah, me too, okay? We all have that. Or more or less events, or different events, or more or less Bible studies, or different Bible studies, or more or less songs, more or fewer songs, or different songs, right? Better social media, more kids' options, better communion bread. That in the first service got an amen. I don't, <laughs> I don't know what to say about that. But look, we're working on some of these things. October, we're going to talk about how we're working on these things. But I think sometimes we can miss the point. Many of us, we wish different people were here in this building. Many of us wish certain people weren't here here in this building. We want more diversity. Yes, that's so good and so important and so true. But at the end of the day, if we're honest, we wish this place was filled with more folks like us. Or who will meet us on our terms, think like us, have hobbies like us, people who we want to be with or be like. In the words of my pastor friend, that's a sociological fellowship. That is not a spiritual fellowship. Do you get that? That's a sociological fellowship, not a spiritual fellowship. What I think it means, what he means is this. All of us want the church to be like the TV show Friends right? That's what we want. A carefully curated community of people we want to identify with, to advance our place in the world or feel like we belong and feel better about ourselves. And again, those are decent goals, but we want the church to sort of recreate our favorite Christian experience. You know, the summer camp high that we had or that college ministry it place that we were, when we were in the center of it for that one month that we were there, Okay. Look, or we want it to be some carefully crafted media experience with enough good-looking hype that it has to be the Holy Spirit. That's what we want. But that's not what the church is. Verse 10, the church is a people God gathers together. People who are completely different from each other and have nothing in common on purpose. <laughs> we are to have only one thing in common. And that one thing is Christ. 
It's Christ. This is because what gathers us together is so important. Who it is that unites us matters. Otherwise, what is the point of doing this? What is the point of gathering here, right? We're doing just a much less successful, sexy version of the newest hotspot. We're doing a much less sexy, successful version of the trending way to spend a weekend. Do you get that? That's not what this is about. According to verse 10, God gathers us together to bear witness to Jesus, to this watching world. God gathers us together to see Jesus in the limbs and the eyes and the facial features of people who are intentionally different than us. Why is the church the most racially, politically, and socially economic segregated hour in America? Do you know why? Because we gather for so many other reasons than Jesus. That's why. And I get so put out so quickly when the church wakes makes me uncomfortable. The only way to ever have a truly diverse church, to represent the all things, let alone the all people on earth, is to unite in him, to rally around a common love, to wish to see Jesus and him alone. Look, at the very end of Lost in the Cosmos, Walker Percy finally gives his remedy to all of our stubborn, lo- stubbornly lost condition, right? The divi- divisiveness inside our own hearts and all around us, including in our churches. It only increases all the more with technology and better, fe- better theories about the ever-expanding cosmos, right? Percy's remedy is old and it is simple. He says it this way. If you're a big enough fool to climb a tree and like a cat refuse to come down, then someone who loves you has to make as big a fool of himself to rescue you. Let me say it again. If you're a big enough fool to climb a tree and like a cat refuse to come down, then someone who loves you has to make as big a fool of himself to rescue you. That's someone who loves you That's someone who has taken you seriously enough to make himself a fool to rescue you and me. That's someone's Jesus Christ. And his cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, his cross is the power of God. Powerful enough to gather all things into full future harmony and powerful enough for us fools to come together and stick together on Sunday mornings and throughout the days between. Behold, please, would we see Jesus and him alone. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you. Thank you for these words, as challenging as they can be, as comforting simultaneously as they can be. Would we see Jesus? Would we know him? Would North Cross be about him? Would you change the ways that we do community? Would you change the very ways that we relate 
to you and to each other? Would you be the unifying force? Because nothing else works. And some of us are tired. And we need you. We need you to step in the gap and love us first again. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.